You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. It is so good to be back. We, Nally and I were in Mexico celebrating 10 years of marriage. And so, yeah, thank you. Uh, grateful to have Lawson come and preach, and it's good to celebrate, and it's good to be back in, in, your, own, in your own bed, in your own house, and, and in your own church, too. So it's, it's good to be here. Well, we'll dive right into Hebrews, and we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. And if you have your Bible or your device, you go ahead and flip there. And as we do every week, let's stand together for the reading of, of God's Word, if you're able. And the Holy Spirit tells us, beginning in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, but no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. By your great mercy, by your great kindness, would 
the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, would it pierce through the thoughts and intentions of our heart now, Father? And Jesus, would you help us to know what it means to have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, to enjoy what you've given us in your death and your resurrection and in your reigning in heaven. So meet us now, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's almost undisputable that the Beatles have some pretty good songs. Uh, pretty popular band. And there's one song I couldn't stop thinking about this week when I was thinking about the passage, and it was a song, Let It Be. Let it be, let it be. It's really kind of a song, a very emotional song, but kind of longing for some help, some, some guidance, and for really for things to change. And there's really a line in there, you know, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And I was thinking about that this week and thought about who is McCartney or Lennon? Who are they asking for the words of wisdom? Do you remember? Mother Mary. Mother Mary speaking words of wisdom. Like so close. <laughs> Got somebody in the Bible. That's pretty good. But Jesus is who we must hear from. Wherever we're at in our lives, we need the words of wisdom from Christ. We don't need the words of wisdom from Mary or, or from Jeff matters. We need them from Jesus himself. That's really probably, that song could have been like a really neat worship song, an undiscovered worship song. Who would have said, Jesus speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. And Hebrews, these are the words that God is giving us of wisdom in our lives. To these Hebrew Christians who are, who are kind of teetering, thinking about going back to Judaism, and you and I, we face similar things. We're, we're facing dialing back our faith. Going into lukewarmness, kind of being in the background, not, not being bold. But we need the words of Hebrews 10 to spur us forward and onward into walking with Christ. And here's how it really begins. is that we have an outstanding bill. Look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Here, here's the wisdom we need to hear. It was a shadow and a good things to come. But the true form of these realities, it could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So these sacrifices that are splattered on the altar, their blood shed year after year, day after day, he says they could never perfect those who draw near. I mean, think about just by the fact that they're offered over and over and over and over. That alone, he's saying, reveals they're not sufficient to forgive you. If you really think about it, if you're doing something over and over and over and expecting a different result, what do we call that? Insanity. Like this, this doesn't accomplish the task. So he's telling them, why would you go back to that? There's something that's offered every year and doesn't ever fix you just by the fact that it's offered every year shows you it didn't work. And if you think about it for a second, the blood of bulls and goats in verse four, even just that alone shows us that's not a fair, is a goat a fair one for one for a human? A goat or a bull or a lamb can never deal with my humanness, with the problems and sins of me being a human. So those two things, if the blood and bulls can never do it, and the fact that they're offered every year proves it doesn't work, what's the point of it all then? Because it's not like this was Moses' idea. The sacrificial system wasn't Moses' grand idea. It's not like Aaron was up on the mountain going, here's what I think we should do for the people. He's too busy making golden calves. He's not coming up with this kind of stuff. 
So why did God give them this sacrificial system? Here's why. If you go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back into Adam and Eve in the garden, what did God say the chain reaction would be if they disobey him, if they sin? You will die. Now they ate of the fruit. Did they die right then? No. But something did die. An animal died in Genesis 3. God killed an animal, and it says, and he clothed them in the skins of that animal. So something did die. Someone's blood was shed. Then you fast forward to Abraham and the covenant, the contract, the deal that God makes with Abraham, and God kills an animal, and then God himself walks through the blood of that animal, communicating to Abraham, by the blood of another, you and I will be able to interact. So what is the blood of bulls and goats? What is this showing us? It is showing us every time we read in Leviticus and we see these sacrifices, it was communicating to these original people and communicating to us that by the blood of someone else, by the blood of another, are we able to draw near to God and God is able to draw near to us. The sacrificial system, it gives us a context to understand the cross. If, if Jesus just came without all this context and he just died and in our place, we would have no framework to go, well, how does that work? But the sacrificial so, shows us, here's how it works. By the blood of another, this covenant is established. By the blood of another, by the cross of Christ, by his blood shed, now you and I can draw near to God. The lambs, bulls, could never do it. And if you think about it, look at what he says in verse two. Otherwise, he says, if they could make them perfect, if they could really forgive the person offering the lamb, then why did they keep doing it? Would they not have ceased? Since the worshipers having been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But when they would have to cart up another lamb and have to slit the throat of another goat, they were being reminded every time that last goat you offered, didn't cover this sin. That last grain offering you poured out, it it didn't cover this one. You need to offer something else. Again and again and again, there was a consciousness of sins that you have a giant debt, that your sins are too big for you to handle. That's why he says in verse four, at the end of verse three, there's a reminder of sins every year. They were reminded every single time, I am still a great sinner. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's really our great problem right there at the end, to take away sins. That's what we all need, desperately. We don't need our sins excused. A sin is what we want. We just want to turn a blind eye to them. We just want to forget them. That doesn't fix anything. It really just prolongs the inevitable blow up. We, want, we don't need our sins explained. Here's why I did this. Here's why that happened. When someone sins against you, does it help you? And they say, okay, let me tell you why I, I, I did that. You don't hear that and go, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. I understand. No, sins explained is not what we need. We don't need our sins reorganized and, and reshuffled or tucking them away under a thin coat of niceness and moral living. We need our sins taken away. But the sacrificial system, our own morality, cannot take them away. So what do these sacrifices do then? 
If they just gave a reminder of sins and a consciousness of sins and they don't take them away, what did the sacrificial system do? The sacrificial system was like a credit card. Even Dave Ramsey will appreciate this. When you buy something on a credit card, are you actually paying for it? No. You are promising, I will pay for this later. You are declaring your intent to pay with other funds. You go to CVS, swipe, adds to the bill. H-E-B, swipe, swipes up swipe, and adds to the bill. Direct TV, swipe, Netflix, swipe. I mean, this is just my life. Boom, boom, boom. And now you get the, the chip reader, which takes forever. I mean, just on and on and on. And then the bill comes. And you, you got to pay that in full every month or you're going to get in a bind. Think about our sins and the Hebrew background. Lie, add to the bill. Lust, add to the bill. Envy, anger, resentment, drunkenness, pride, sexual morality, on and on and on and on and on. And they would put these goats on the altar as an appeal to credit. This will be paid for later. This will be paid for later. Beloved, Jesus came to settle the debt. He is the answer to the promise that it will be paid for later. His life and his blood are the funds. The cross was the contract. The nails were the pen. The tomb was the deposit box. And his resurrection is the deposit slip paid in full. It is finished. Jesus paid the debt. If you look at verse 5. Since the blood and bulls and goats can never take away sins, verse 5, therefore, consequently, when Christ came into the world, and that alone is an amazing phrase, when Christ came into the world, where is he coming from? Heaven. Christ, the Messiah. When the Messiah entered into our world from heaven, and this is all from Psalm 40, he's applying this to Jesus by his entering. It's like he's saying, the sacrifices, the offerings, Leviticus didn't do it but you've prepared a body for me and I will do it. Verse seven, I've come to do your will, O God. What is the will of God? To ransom us. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 1 says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So when Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God, he is saying, I have come to be crushed on the cross under your wrath. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And I have come to rescue according to your will. This is what Jesus came to do. And this really is the heart of Christianity. Jesus in our place, offering himself on the cross for sinners like you and me. And since this happened, since this is true, verse 10, 
And by that will, by him giving himself as a ransom for many, by the will that he would be crushed by the Father, by the will that he would rescue us from the present evil age, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Finally, and notice the tense of this, we will be, no, we have been You have been cleansed. This is not the ongoing sanctification that Paul talks about, about our growth in Christ, our our daily walking with Jesus, growing in holiness, Christ-likeness. This is the declaration, the Jewish idea of cleanness. Remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians who are entertaining the idea about going back to Judaism so they can be clean. He tells them, you have been clean. No bull ever made you finally clean. No bull ever made you finally clean before God. But Jesus did once for all time. That's why he says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he's contrasting that with what we saw in verse one, year after year, every year, every year for a millennia, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. But then one time, one act of Christ For by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, forever, those who are being sanctified. So there we have both. We've been sanctified. We are being sanctified for all time, all the way forward and all the way back is the reverberations of the cross of Christ. I love this word he has in verse 14, that he has perfected. This doesn't mean the way that we think about it. Don't think of it, oh, okay, when we become Christians, we become perfect people. Of course not. Everyone in this room knows you're not a perfect person, that we still sin. So what does this word mean? The word really means finalized. That's done. This is in the same Greek word family, what Jesus yells on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. It is perfected. It is done. So now he's saying that to us. You are perfect. If you are in Christ right now, this is true of you. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you even feel the kind of irony tension in there? He's perfected those who are being sanctified. It seems like it would be the other way. He's sanctifying us so we can be perfected. But the gospel flips everything upside down, doesn't it? We've already been declared righteous, perfected, finalized. And now we're on our way to that. Your past is finalized. And you must believe that. Or you will never have the joy that you can have in Christ. It's been dealt with. And that, beloved, that also means once for all time that your future has been dealt with. Accounts settled. There will not be any past due notices. You have been perfected for all time. This is why you should believe with every ounce in your being in verse 14 that you cannot lose your salvation. Or else this verse is not true. Or else the Bible is not true. Because as John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost it. It would have already happened. But he has perfected for all time, forever those who are being sanctified. This is the bone-rattling truth of Christianity, that when you trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins, you are registered as perfect. 
That's amazing to me because I know I am not perfect. I know I am not righteous. I know I am a sinner. But because of Christ, I am registered as perfect, as righteous, as complete, as finalized, clean, and accepted by God. The way we talk about Christianity, becoming a Christian in the Bible Belt, is often unbiblical. Christianity isn't us accepting God. It is God accepting us because of Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not you accepting God. It is God accepting you because of Christ. That you've been perfected once for all time by the body, by the single offering of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing you can add. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can accomplish to make it better. It is done. It is finalized. It is grace. And the same salvation that you have, that I have, that Martin Luther has, that Charles Spurgeon has, that John Piper has, that Matt Chandler has, we are all made perfect in Christ. Perfect in the sense that you aren't lacking any credentials to draw near to God. You aren't lacking any credentials to go to heaven. You aren't lacking any credentials to enjoy God's presence. Perfect in the sense that all of your impurities and all of your sins have been swallowed up by the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's forever. It's not renewable because it doesn't expire. We really struggle with foreverness, don't we? Because we're very seasonal, fad, trend-laden people. Like, I haven't seen anybody this past week posting pictures about pumpkin spice lattes. It's Girl Scout cookies right now. We're in Girl Scout cookie season because we're trend-given people. I mean, you remember mullets. I didn't see anybody with one this morning. I looked before, before I made the comment. You remember acid wash jeans? Pagers? Remember your first car? Why don't you drive your first car? I mean, does anyone still have their first car? You don't count. You're young still. Young. For, of course you have your first car. If you're over 50, you probably don't have your first car. You remember how you used to be able to play at a church kickball game and not worry if you're going to hurt yourself? <laughs> so many things change. Come and go. Cultures change. Countries change. Your whole life can change. You can lose your house. You can lose your health, you can lose your job, but one thing can never change, your status in Christ. And we must learn together to live it, to live it all. Since verses 1 through 18 are true, that's how he begins. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since, he's saying, since these things are true, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since he's opened the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, through his body being ripped open for us on the cross, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since all of these things are true, we cannot continue the same way. We cannot go backwards. Since all these things are true, we cannot just coast, we cannot go backwards. What must we do? Let us draw near. 23, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
but maybe you don't think these things are true. Do you think they're true? Maybe you aren't sure, but let me ask you, if you don't think they're true or maybe you're not sure, what would you lose if you believed the gospel's true? What, what risk is there to believe that the gospel is true? What do you lose if you believe that Jesus did die for your sins and rose again? Compare what you think you would lose to what you would gain. Forgiveness and eternal life and peace with God and freedom from sins. Christian, since you know the gospel is true, live it. The writer of Hebrews has repeated all of these themes over and over and over. And I know even right now for the past 20 minutes, what I've been saying is you might think, okay, okay, been there, done that, got it, man. When we get to that point in our lives, we've entered to a really dangerous point. Because really, yeah, maybe you've been here and you've heard that. But how many of us have been here, heard that, and then lived that? And didn't give in to hypocrisy tomorrow. How many of us loved that? How many of us have been here, we've heard that, we've loved that, we've enjoyed that. We've encouraged one another towards that. 19 through 25 is really now the live this way message bundled into these let us statements. So what do we need to do first? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I just love the phrase, let us draw near with a true heart because, man, Bible Belt Christians, we are so good at faking it. We think the, the, world's, the world's really not that good at faking it, but we are. We hide, we pretend, we put on shows. Listen, if you wanted to cry this morning, do it. A true heart. If you wanted to get on your knees and weep during the songs because of your pain, your, your suffering, or just the, the joy that you have, but you're like, oh, what are people going to think? Kill that. Who gives a rip what someone else thinks? We must walk in a true heart. Jesus frees us from fakeness and to live and to walk in his grace. And this doesn't mean we sin, hey, I'm just gonna be a true heart, I'm just gonna be who I am. That's not what this means. This means being honest with where we are and how we want to walk with Jesus. Drawing near with a true heart, not a fake one, not a pretending one, but a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's where this true heart is really aiming to go, in a full assurance of faith. For every Christian, this is the true north of our hearts, assurance that we are cemented and solidified with Jesus as our Savior. We sin. I hate when I sin. I love that I have a Savior. It's the only thing that keeps me going. I hate when I sin, but I love that I have a Savior. Assurance doesn't mean sinlessness. Assurance means I have a Savior. Because you will sin, and you will sin in big ways, and you will sin in scary ways. And the satanic powers want you to feel condemned. How could you do that? You think you're a Christian, all these kinds of things. But we remember Romans 8. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What will separate me from the love of God? Shall pain, shall tribulation, shall poverty, shall the sword, shall the principalities and powers, Satan and his demons? No, nothing shall separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. I am now more than a conqueror, conqueror through him who loves me. That's assurance. Are you sure of your salvation? God doesn't want you to be unsure. He doesn't want you to wonder if he loves you. He wants you to know and be assured of his love and his grace and his kindness for you. I mean, Natalie and I, we just got back from this all-inclusive resort for our anniversary. It's amazing. I could sit on the beach. I could raise my hand, look at this guy. He would run over. What can I do for you? And I would say, hey, can I have some guacamole? No problem. He'd come right back. Boom. Do you need anything else, Mr. Matters? Yeah, how about some sorbet? Passion fruit, done. Boom, he'd come back. It was incredible. Now, imagine you were there. And you were timid. I don't know if I should ask him. He seems busy. I don't know if I should bother the guy. I know my dinner is included. I, I know these things are perks and privileges of being here, but I don't know. I feel like I should pay for it. I, I should do something. I'd say, are you losing your mind? It's all taken care of. Your name is on the list. You are supposed to be here. You are here. Relax. Enjoy it. Christian, assurance is knowing my name is in the Lamb's book of life, that I have been saved, and I have all of the privileges and all of the blessings of being a child of God, his help, his mercy, his kindness, his power, his forgiveness is mine. And if you are lacking assurance today, it's because your faith has fogged up. So if you're lacking, don't, don't look back at, sometimes we tell people, well, just remember, do you remember the prayer you prayed? That is not good advice. Rather, we look up to heaven. We look to Jesus. What do I believe? What do I know to be true about Christ? That's my assurance, not anything I've done, but who he is. And if you do believe and if you know it's true and you still feel like, well, I'm not sure. Next, I would just ask you, are you hiding any known sin? Because what does he say? A true heart and full assurance. But how does this true, what does this true heart look like? With a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. So we know If you are a believer and you're walking in hidden sin, eventually it starts to feel horrible to you. And then you wonder, how can I be a Christian if I'm doing this? Well, that's a good sign. It's a warning light for you saying, repent, because you are a Christian. Turn from this. Walk with Jesus. Have the remembrance of your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, because Satan wants you to be reminded day after day of your sins, throwing them in your face. But Christ's blood speaks a better word. He wants you to know I have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that I have been forgiven. So, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession, that truth of our hope, because he who promises faithful, hold fast that my forgiveness is real. No matter what happens to me in my life, my forgiveness is real. No matter how my suffering unfolds, my forgiveness is real. 
God promised me eternal life. He is faithful. God promised to forgive me. He is faithful. He promised me the Holy Spirit. He is faithful. I think another way to consider this hold fast, the confession, is to hold fast to the realness of Jesus. This is one of the things that really worries me about the Bible Belt, is that it's possible to come to church on Sunday, go to Bible studies during the week, and yet Jesus has still slipped into the background of your life. Do not let Jesus slip into the background noise of your life. Because sometimes in our home, Natalie and I will be reading or we're typing stuff or whatever, and Doc McStuffins is on TV. We're not watching Doc McStuffins. It's just on. We just needed some filler. Just turn the TV on, Doc McStuffins was on, whatever. Sometimes some of us, we just turn Jesus into just this background noise of our lives. Does the Lord Jesus make a real difference in your life, in your decisions, in your actions, in your emotions, in your parenting, in your marriage? The fact that Jesus has raised from the dead and reigns over the heavens, does that change the way you talk to your kids? Does it change the way you live? It change the way you talk to that coworker that drives you nuts? Is he the focus? And is he in focus in your life? I mean, how often do you think about the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and now today I'm living for him and with him? He's loving me. He's, he's helping me turn from sin. He's empowering me to ask for forgiveness. He's empowering me to forgive. He's empowering me to love. He's empowering me to serve. That This is all Christ. We must keep him in view and hold fast. And we struggle to do that. That's why the next verses exist, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So now we want to draw near with a true heart. We want to hold fast to Christ. So let's push one another, stir one another towards that reality. I think one of the worst habits Christians pick up is in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. God is commanding us to gather together. Not just for the sake of gathering. For some of us, we just gather on Sunday mornings. If that's why you're here, just to be here, it's for us to go to church. I guess I'll go to church. We go to churches for the sake of going to church. That's an awful reason. It's not even a biblical one. We gather to worship Christ. We gather to encourage one another. And some of you, you've developed the habit of skipping Sundays and skipping relationships with other Christians. It's dangerous. It's sinful, number one. I mean, think about why these Hebrew Christians would develop, already in the first century, their churches are developing the habit of kind of not meeting anymore. Why? Why were these Christians developing this habit of neglecting the gatherings? Persecution. So you can understand kind of, okay, that, that would really be challenging. Why are Christians meeting in China when the government says you're not allowed to? Why are Christians gathering in labor camps in North Korea and all of the fecal matter in the camp. Well, why do Christians do these things? Because they know reality. 
But why do Christians in Tomball and in Houston develop this habit of not meeting together? Laziness. Kids' sports. Embarrassing reasons. You must evaluate your heart. What do I really love? Do I love just going to church or do I love Jesus? Is he more important to me? We gather to encourage one another to hold fast to Jesus because if you want to hold fast to Jesus, if he is in the foreground of your life, you will meet with other Christians on Sunday mornings, maybe in groups, maybe over coffee, over meals, in your homes, and you will stir one another to love and good works. Hearing, because when I see someone else's love and good works, it stirs me to want to have more love and, and other good works. When I hear about Marie Gonzalez in our church and praying for her and her evangelistic Bible study in her yoga studio, where she goes to stretch and she's there to share the gospel now. It's like, it stirs me to, man, what can I be doing? What are things I could engage in? Because our love and good works stir one another to love and good works. It's fine to get together and talk sports and talk schooling and parenting. I love talking about the Rockets and sports, whatever. But we need to encourage one another towards following and honoring Jesus in all of life. Because God has designed us for this purpose. That's why he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This is the ministry we all need of encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sometimes when Christians get older, they begin to do less encouraging. But here, the writer of Hebrews says, there should be more encouraging the older you get, the closer we get to the return of Christ. Encourage one another. And I, I want us to really notice that in verse 25, there are zero generational or life stage qualifiers. Encourage one another that's in your same generation. Encourage one another that's in the same number of kids as you. Encourage one another that's single like you. There are zero qualifiers here. It's, it's human nature to, to want to be around people just like us. But it's the supernatural nature of grace to be around people who are not like us, who are from a different race, who are from a different income. Older saints need to encourage younger Christians. It's a real think, problem in the Bible Belt when we only want to be around people like us, when older Christians only want to be around older Christians. It's not healthy. So all of the older saints and redeemer, which is like 40 and up, which is not old. So we have a young church. Don't enter yourself into a religious retirement center. Don't only just huddle up with those who are in the last couple of decades. Engage with the younger Christians. And the younger Christians too. Don't just be around young people like you. We need the older Mix it up with the older. Mix it up with the younger. I mean, Titus 2 actually commands it. Young moms and dads need your encouragement. I know sometimes there's this kind of weird, like, oh, well, they know more theology than I do. So what? They may know about the doctrine of inspiration, but it's not helping that guy love his wife. They may know about the multiple theories of the atonement, but that's not going to, they haven't learned how to actually live as a married couple yet. Maybe that two-year marriage could really learn from your 40-year marriage. See, this is 
That's why Titus 2 doesn't say, teach them all of the great solas in your Bible study. No, teach, teach them to love their husband. Sometimes Johnny, he may know more theology than you, but he doesn't know how to discipline his bratty little kid. And you need to tell him, man up. He's got a squishy bottom for a reason. <laughs> Marrieds need singles. Singles need marrieds. Younger believers, they need older believers. And older believers, you need them. So they can keep you from fossilizing. Keep you young. Keep you going till the end. It's almost like we're a body and every part needs each other. I wish that was in the Bible somewhere. Jesus put us together for this purpose. So let's live it all together. Let us be those who will draw near. Let us be those who will hold fast. And let us be those who will stir one another to love and good deeds. These are the words of wisdom that we desperately need. Let's pray together.